Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Ian Fleming. Now let's get started with the conclusion of our story about Ian Fleming. Fleming's prospects were greatly helped by his second effort. The manuscript of Live and Let Die was written even before the publication of Casino Royale. It literally had a larger-scale villain, Bonaparte Ignace Gallia, a.k.a. Mr. Big, a mysterious Haitian criminal chieftain who ran a nightclub in Harlem and a tropical fish export company in St. Petersburg, Florida. In reality, Mr. Big's operation is a front for smuggling gold coins connected to Henry Morgan's treasure from Big's secret Jamaican island location to finance Schmirsch. He supposedly defected to the Soviet Union after World War II, trained as a Soviet special agent, and became prominent in the organization that serves as Bond's nemesis, at least in the early 007 novels. There is the requisite love interest, Solitaire, and a narrow escape from a shark and barracuda-infested reef when Bond's knowledge of marine mines leads to the demolition of Mr. Big's boat and the criminal's demise at the hands of the aforementioned predators. Live and Let Die was released in April of 1954. It was greeted with more positive reviews and helped additionally by being banned in Ireland because of the sex scenes. It quickly sold 9,000 copies by the end of the year and was also considered quite successful. Unfortunately, the U.S. edition of Casino Royale did not perform very well, and critics were negative. Any additional American media interest dried up, and for the moment, Fleming would have to be content with primarily a British audience. His life settled into an annual process that would remain for the rest of his life. He would spend the first three months of the year at Goldeneye, completing a novel. In the spring, he would return to Britain and help publicize the book that was completed a year earlier. He would then involve himself in the American release of the book, written two years previously. Summertime called for a vacation disguised as a business trip for his newspaper chain, which actually resulted in some excellent journalism from time to time. Fleming obtained a worldwide scoop when he got Somerset Maugham to write a serialized interpretation of the ten best novels in the world, as well as their authors. The articles ran in the Sunday Times and achieved a major bump in circulation. This also prompted the creation of a magazine section, a first for British newspapers, and the product of Fleming's initial effort. The novelist's conveyor belt approach to the creative process meant that his third novel, Moonraker, was already completed by early 1954. Ian Fleming was intent on writing a novel with cinematic appeal. He kept the plot relatively simple, with a completely British locale and a former Nazi, Hugo Drax, a.k.a. Hugo von der Drasch, attempting to unleash a Soviet-supplied warhead on the city of London. Bond foils this process with the aid of Gayla Brand, who conveniently disappears into engagement with another special agent, fiancé, after Drax is destroyed by his own missile. 
Fleming focused on a British environment he knew well, but it did not accomplish his intent to make it to the big screen. In fact, Moonraker would not be optioned until the late 70s, by that time the 11th film of the 007 series. Even so, the book sold well, and there were enough high-profile reviews for Fleming to continue, already intent on his fourth novel, Diamonds Are Forever. British paperback editions would also start to appear in sequence, beginning with Casino Royale in 1955, published by Pan Books. These very inexpensive versions of the Bond novels would routinely sell into the tens of thousands of copies and help bring 007 to a much wider audience. Fleming used his vacation to travel to both Saratoga, New York, and Las Vegas. The racetrack at the upstate New York spa town and Vegas were both to be incorporated into the next Bond book. The novelist had been married for two and a half years, and his relationship with his wife and son was one of almost parallel universes. He did not care for the intense social schedule that his wife maintained with her upper-class and celebrity acquaintances. He preferred a quiet evening by himself at one of several posh men's clubs, slipping home without acknowledging whatever group of people Anne was entertaining, especially because this highly intellectual, socially snobby clique considered his books to be pedestrian. In his early childhood, his son Casper was raised by a nanny who lived in the countryside, and the boy did not even see his father or mother during the week. Fleming's lengthy trips around the world meant that he was absent a great deal of the time. He was also snarled up in film rights negotiations that became convoluted enough to again kill off any substantive media deals. As Fleming headed to Jamaica in early 1956, he insisted that his son Casper was still too young to travel to the Caribbean. That winter, his wife decided to remain behind in Britain and stay with her child. Fleming forged ahead. Diamonds Are Forever was released in late March and quickly sold out its first British printing of 12,500 copies. Fleming's American publisher, Macmillan, even moved up the book's publication to try and capitalize on this momentum. When British Prime Minister Anthony Eden stayed at Goldeneye in late 1956, Fleming and his novels got another boost. His next novel, From Russia with Love, was already written. In 1957, research that Ian Fleming used in Diamonds Are Forever became the basis for the non-fiction book, The Diamond Smugglers, and articles he wrote about South African diamond smuggling for the Sunday Times. The book was brief at 160 pages and was generally well-received as an interesting true story about a provocative topic. 1957 would also bring on the publication of From Russia with Love, drawn from Fleming's trips to Istanbul and his fascination with train travel and its potential for deadly fictional dramatization. The novel featured one of the more memorable Bond villains, the hideous toad-like Rosa Klebb, and various other Soviet smirsh characters, exploiting the increasing Cold War tension that gripped the free world. It was also memorable in that its ending, with James Bond having been poisoned with a kick from Rosa Klebb's dart-tipped shoe, was a cliffhanger, Bond writhing on a hotel room floor, gasping for breath. After five books, relative success, but also having reached a commercial plateau, Fleming felt that he had exhausted most of his plot devices and characterizations and briefly considered killing off his creation. Unlike previous 007 manuscripts, he rewrote parts of the book upon his return to Britain, leaving in the potential for From Russia with Love to be the finale of James Bond. It is the only James Bond novel to conclude with the words, The End. When From Russia with Love received some of the most favorable criticism yet and continued to be extremely popular with the public, 
Ian Fleming decided to continue the series. Many considered it to be his best novel, but the Jamaican setting of the subsequent Dr. No would be indicative of Fleming's ambivalence in continuing. About this time, he wrote to Raymond Chandler, quote, If one has a grain of intelligence, it is difficult to go on being serious about a character like James Bond, unquote. He was also so creatively exhausted that he took a lot of Dr. No's plotline from a treatment for a television series that never got off the ground. Near death at the end of From Russia With Love, Bond's recovery is casually attributed to a specialist in tropical venoms who just happened to be staying in his hotel. The villain, Dr. Julius No, part German, part Chinese, with metallic crab-like weapons for hands, is a blatant recycling of Dr. Fu Manchu. The heroine, Honey Child Rider, and the destruction of Dr. No via his guano factory returns Fleming to the over-the-top ways that were swept aside by the serious fiction of From Russia With Love. The author's mindset was also not helped by various ailments like sciatica and kidney problems which indicated that Fleming's unhealthy consumption of upwards of three packs of British cigarettes a day, accompanied by heavy consumption of alcohol, was starting to have a debilitating effect on his body. For the first time, Casper Fleming would accompany his parents to Jamaica. Most likely, this aspect of the annual Jamaica sojourn did not go well, as Anne Fleming would return home in less than a month. It was probably about this time that Fleming returned to his philandering ways, involving himself with an exotic, wealthy Jamaican neighbor, Blanche Blackwell, a formerly platonic friend who at some indistinct moment became his lover. Blanche's family was among the most prominent of Jamaica's colonial hierarchy, and she was the carefree counterpart to Fleming's wife's combative tension. Part of Anne's discomfort, hostility, and early return to Britain may have been her acknowledgement of this situation. Coincidentally, literary criticism of Dr. No was uniformly bad, and for the first time in Fleming's life, the character and personality of James Bond were vilified as puerile sadism and British snobbery, with journalists suddenly piling on with this theme. Having set a high bar with his previous Cold War epic, Fleming was criticized for merely going through the motions in his latest work. His personal life also became a more egregious source of conflict, with he and Anne openly discussing whether they should continue to live together. In the winter of 1959, Fleming made no pretense of even attempting to put on a happy face. He returned to Jamaica and Blanche by himself. Despite the tumult around him, when he returned to the Caribbean, the disciplined Fleming began work on his seventh novel. This time, a single-minded villain, Oric Goldfinger, would attempt to seize America's gold reserve from Fort Knox. Fleming's practice of utilizing real people as a source for character names was conspicuous in his appropriation of the name of an unpopular modern architect of ugly modernist British skyscrapers, Erno Goldfinger. Despite more critical skepticism, upon release, the book would quickly rise to the top of the bestseller list. Fleming's production schedule was interrupted by a serious effort by CBS to produce a Bond-related television program. In the summer of 1958, the network at the highest levels was discussing the idea of a 13-episode TV series. For a proposal, the novelist put together several treatments of Bond-like characters and situations to try and close a deal. But again, network politics killed off the idea, Fleming getting maddeningly close to the mother load of product tie-ins, American television. Unable to merely toss this creative effort aside, the author fleshed out five of these treatments into a collection of short stories which became his Golden Eye Project of early 1959. 
This collection would be released in 1960 under the title of For Your Eyes Only. Its first printing of over 20,000 copies sold out quickly. In March of 1961, Fleming's publishing career trajectory was changed by a single magazine article. Although Fleming was quite successful, especially in Britain, he was not as prominent or popular in the United States. American critical reaction, especially in more sophisticated circles like the New York Times, was usually condescending, if not downright dismissive. But in March 1961, Life magazine published an article detailing President John F. Kennedy's top 10 favorite books. There, amidst Stendhal's The Red and the Black and a biography of politician John C. Calhoun was Fleming's From Russia with Love. Signet, the U.S. publisher with paperback rights, followed with massive publicity, and by the end of 1961, the Bond series was the best-selling thriller genre in the United States. Ian Fleming was on the cusp of an unprecedented commercial breakthrough he could not have anticipated based on continued theatrical development frustration and litigation. In March of 1961, a former collaborator and film producer, Kevin McClory, got a look at an advance copy of Fleming's next 007 book, Thunderball. McClory and Fleming and other investors had initially attempted to develop a screenplay for a theatrical Bond release that the producers were shopping to the major studios. Eventually, Fleming became disenchanted with McClory and attempted to walk away from the deal, believing that he had the ability to retain any publishing aspects of the project's plotline. McClory claimed breach of copyright and sued. As thousands of copies of Thunderball were on the verge of release, McClory's injunction against publication was denied, but the copyright lawsuit would continue. Shortly after the suit was filed, Fleming suffered a massive heart attack during a Sunday Times board meeting. The situation was serious enough to keep him in the hospital for a month. Restless while bedridden, he used the time to sketch out the outline and initial drafts of a child story entitled Chitty Chitty Bang Bang a fantasy that drew on his lifelong obsession with automobiles. Just when it must have seemed that a film deal would never materialize, two film producers were finally able to get Bond off of the ground. Harry Saltzman had optioned the film rights to several of the Bond books and teamed with another producer, Albert Cubby Broccoli, to form a company, Eon Productions, to produce Bond. Broccoli was well-connected at United Artists, and within months, especially after the momentum the Bond series was generating in the U.S., a lucrative deal was put together to make six Bond films. Fleming would be paid $100,000 a film, plus 5% of the profits. With the legal cloud surrounding Thunderball, it was decided that Dr. No would be the first novel to head into production. Ian Fleming stayed out of most of the major decisions revolving around the production of Dr. No. He had no interest in composing the script, and while he suggested first David Niven and then Roger Moore as the leading man, Broccoli had other ideas. As Bond, he cast a relative unknown Scott, Sean Connery, and plucked Ursula Andress out of total obscurity for the role of Honey Rider. Andress's first appearance, walking out of the Jamaican Ocean, diving knife holstered by a white bikini, would be memorable indeed. In early 1962, Fleming, despite his illness, made his way back to Jamaica and his annual typewriter appointment ultimately producing on Her Majesty's Secret Service. He looked forward to the film release of Dr. No in late 1962. Hopefully it would help him rebound from the dreadful reviews of his previous The Spy Who Loved Me, a novel that attempts to change the typical Bond structure with narration from a woman. 
the book was such a critical failure that Fleming would not allow a British paperback edition and would sell film rights to the title only. Fleming's domestic situation had never really improved, especially with both he and his wife conducting affairs with the other's knowing suspicion. Blanche Blackwell solved the distance problem by frequently meeting Fleming during his research tourism, and Anne was conducting an affair with a prominent politician, Hugh Gateskell, who might have become prime minister, but for the ill health that killed him in January of 1963. Anne also spent much of her time complaining that the various homes they lived in were practically demeaning. In 1960, the Flemings bought a deteriorating 40-room mansion, Warnerford Place, in Sevenhampton, Wiltshire, England, and proceeded to gut the entire building, a project most likely developed to give Anne something to do, as Fleming would spend little time there, even after it was renovated. Ian Fleming spent much of late 1962 in Japan researching the eventual Japanese-themed You Only Live Twice. Professionally, in mid-1963, Ian Fleming was starting to ride the crest of a very high wave. On Her Majesty's Secret Service had 42,000 copies ordered in advance and quickly sold into a second edition. While Dr. No, the motion picture would receive lukewarm reviews, it was a box office success in both Europe and the United States. The film also increased the popularity of the entire Bond series. With his 12th novel, You Only Live Twice in the Can, Fleming was now one of the most famous and successful writers in the world. But he was also in failing health, and he knew it. He would spend the last year of his life arguing with his wife over her extravagance in decorating their new home and being relatively depressed and miserable. He began to give away some of his expensive wardrobe to close friends, especially as much of his clothing no longer fit. In January 1964, Fleming returned to Jamaica, his work schedule cut to 90 minutes a day. He had a plot challenge on his hands as he had used James Bond's obituary as a device to end You Only Live Twice. This would be elaborately dealt with at the beginning of his next Bond book, The Man with the Golden Gun. He eventually implored his wife to join him, which she did, and immediately regretted it, their disagreement so unpleasant that she would have left if he was not in such frail health. Somehow he returned to Britain with what he perceived to be a completed manuscript, although the writer Kingsley Amos would have to be called in to subsequently polish the initial draft. Fleming was hospitalized in April after playing a round of golf in the pouring rain, ignoring his doctor's advice upon his release, continuing to drink and smoke as heavily as ever. His mother, who spent much of Fleming's adult life living in the Bahamas and Monte Carlo, died on July 27th. Fleming insisted on attending her funeral and conducting his usual schedule, his health deteriorating on a daily basis. On August 11th, after dinner with his wife and a friend, Fleming suffered another massive heart attack. Although he was coherent enough to joke with the ambulance driver who took him to the hospital, he would die in the early morning hours of August 12th, aged 56. It was also his son's 12th birthday. Although Ian Fleming died on top of the publishing world, his wife and son would both experience great unhappiness following his death. Although his son showed some academic promise as a teenager, he was expelled from Eton for, among other things, possessing loaded firearms in his dorm room. He left Oxford after two years, accessed his trust fund at age 21, and quickly became an intravenous drug user. He would commit suicide by a deliberate drug overdose of barbiturates at his mother's London apartment on October 2, 1975, aged 23. Never having come to terms with her relationship with her husband, Anne Fleming was plunged into deep depression and alcoholism after the death of her son. 
She passed away from cancer at age 68 on July 12, 1981, at her home, Sevenhampton Place. Today, the mansion is owned by an auto racing magnate. Blanche Blackwell indirectly made her own contribution to popular culture when her Jamaican son Chris founded Island Records, which produced numerous popular music stars including Nirvana, U2, and Cat Stevens, among others. He sold the label for £200 million in 1989. He then bought and transformed GoldenEye into a lavish hotel property. Perhaps even more amazing, as of January 1, 2017, Blanche Blackwell lives on in London at 104 years old. An entire volume could be devoted to the business machinations surrounding Ian Fleming's estate and his creation, James Bond. Anne Fleming did attempt to stop any additional Bond books and films beyond what her husband created. The complicated legal and corporate machinery underpinning James Bond insisted otherwise, and the franchise morphed into a colossal and perpetual popular culture phenomenon. Fleming did live to see From Russia With Love become the most popular film in Britain the year of its release. By then, he probably no longer cared. He was a sick man who knew his time was running out. Unhappily married, a distant father whose only attempt at parenting resulted in tragedy, and his work frequently disdained by the British intellectual circle that included his wife, Fleming felt he never achieved true greatness or literary substance. In the end... Ian Fleming fell victim to one of the most hackneyed dramatic cliches imaginable, the sad and depressing realization that money and fame can't buy happiness. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Ian Fleming. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Ian Fleming by Andrew Lysett and Goldeneye, Where Bond Was Born, Ian Fleming's Jamaica by Matthew Parker. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and music information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm-hmm.